this morning, you're in uh, Zephaniah. We have, uh, we're going to take a slight pause, a slight break in our series going through uh, the book of Hebrews. And we're not going to be touching on that particular uh, book this morning. But we're going to take a slight pause and we're going to look at some different, uh, different truths out of the scriptures over the next couple of weeks. Especially dealing with Christmas. Especially dealing with the fact of the Savior's birth. And one of the things though about this particular prophecy in Zephaniah. Uh, one of the things you might probably immediately recognize is the fact that you haven't heard many sermons out of Zephaniah and you had to find it. You have to dig in your Old Testament to find out where Zephaniah was. But I think also to understand really the, the, what Zephaniah is talking about when it, when it comes to this particular chapter in chapter number 3. And if, if you notice, he's uh, over and over again throughout these verses, he's talking about joy. He's talking about rejoicing. He's talking about that the people of Israel can rejoice in who their Lord is and who Yahweh is and what he has done and what he has said about them. But I think to really understand the weight of that particular prophecy, I think what we have to do is fast forward several hundred years and go to Luke chapter number two. So if you, if you, have, if you have bookmarkers, keep your bookmarker in Zephaniah, but go to Luke number two. Luke chapter 2, the infamous uh, nativity chapter of our Lord Jesus Christ, telling all of the details about his birth, the, the shepherds and the angels and all that sort of thing. A passage that gets read and read and read at this particular time of year. But one of the things I've always tried to do is, is imagine what it would actually be like to be in that field with the shepherds. Have you ever tried to picture and put yourself in their shoes or in their sandals? You know, they're in this field in the middle of a meadow, perhaps there's stinking sheep all around them. And it's, it's a normal night. They're on the outskirts of Bethlehem. They're doing their thing, watching over sheep. Probably one is barely awake, trying to stay awake because he's keeping watch. While the other guys, they're, they're napping. They're taking their snooze. It's his turn to keep watch. But it's a normal night. Nothing, uh, nothing overly special about it. Nothing that would make you say, this is an, uh, an extraordinary uh, sort of night that's occurring. When suddenly, out of nowhere, bam, an angel appears. An angel just lights up the whole meadow. Because what was lit, lit up by moonlight now is lit up by the glory of an angel. As it says in this particular chapter, if you know, I think it's verse number, well, let's just read a couple of verses. Luke 2, 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. That glory is, is lighting up that field where they're sitting. That field where they're just kind of relaxing. And all of them, they are scared out of their minds. And I wonder what was going through their minds. I wonder what they were thinking. Luke tells us they were greatly afraid, or that is, they are absolutely filled with terror. They are petrified. And I think that's one of the reasons why the angel says, fear not, relax. I have something good to tell you. And the whole time, what is he telling them? And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. 
And he goes on and he starts to tell them about the birthplace of the Savior, of Christ the Lord. But the whole time, I imagine the shepherds didn't exactly hear all the words. I don't know, in my mind, in my mind I, I imagine the shepherds just rubbing their eyes like, What? Am I still dreaming? Or is this the wine talking? Is that spoiled gazelta fish that I had? What's going on? <laughs> and of course they're not dreaming. They, it really was an angel in front of them. It really was a messenger of Yahweh. Appearing before them right in their midst. Telling them exactly where they could find. The long sought after. The long hoped for Messiah. The Christ of God. He was born. <laughs> Just down the road, just in the village down the way. You can go find him in an ordinary stable or cave, an ordinary manger with two ordinary parents. <laughs> Nothing overly miraculous about it except for the fact that this is not just an ordinary baby. It's God come in the flesh. And to make sure they don't miss the point, what happens after the angel is telling them? So far, it's just been one angel. Which is already surprising enough. Maybe giving them a little bit of arrhythmia. And then suddenly to make it even more spectacular. What happens? Verse 13. And, and, and suddenly. There was with the angel to a multitude of the heavenly host. Praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. From one angel to a multitude. Suddenly that single messenger who's giving the news of Jesus' birth is flanked by a ginormous choir of angels who begin belting out this glorious announcement. The Savior is born. Imagine the biggest choir you've ever seen. And then multiply that by a factor of ten. And that would still be too small to uh, sort of estimate how big this angel choir was. The word multitude is actually where we get our word plethora, which just means too many to count. Too many angels populated that night sky for anyone to be one, two, filling the night sky, singing about Jesus' birth. I love this scene because these awestruck shepherds then go down. And suddenly become the world's first evangelists as they go and they see the very birthplace of the one who would take away the world's sins. But what I find so fascinating about this particular announcement of Jesus' birth is how it's phrased. Because in verse 10, notice what the angel says again. Fear not, quelling their petrified souls and minds. Fear not. For behold, I bring you what? Good news of what? Great joy. I think it is very significant that the, that the first sort of descriptor, the first adjective, the, the leading ingredient of the Messiah's arrival is joy. And not just joy, but great joy. And it's an invitation to these shepherds that the angel is here giving them. You are invited to have joy. As many reasons to fear as you might think that you have. You have even more reasons to rejoice. Again, the Savior is here. But I think what's lost on us is just kind of how intrusive this news of joy is. Because you see, this, 
this announcement, you can have great joy, comes at a time when I think Jewish spirits were at an all-time historic low. All-time low. There was not a lot that people were rejoicing about in these days. Go back to, again, keep your minds in first century. In the year 63 BC, so a couple of decades prior to this moment, that's when Israel came under Roman occupation. They had been uh, traded around, you know, Babylon and Persia and all those things. They had been traded around, there had been conflict, and now Rome had taken over. Pompey the Great came in, marched into Jerusalem, sacked Jerusalem, took over the city, desecrated the temple. Now Israel is a sort of occupied territory of Rome under Caesar's thumb, so to speak. So now, when the angels visit these shepherds, what's the norm? They are in their second generation of Roman occupation. With Roman pillaging and and pilfering anything they basically want. This tyranny is overtaking all of Jewish life. Devout Jews then, those who perhaps were still moderately faithful to the words of Yahweh, they had little to be joyful about. They could look around, and what did they see? They saw an awful surrounding. <laughs> no real freedom, no real reasons to hope, no real reasons to joy, rejoice. They're under another tyrannical ruler, losing their country yet again, which, interestingly enough, corresponds to our own day. You know, Americans have not been occupied. We are not overrun by any sort of tyrannical dictator, I guess, depending on your view of Washington. But if recent surveys are to be believed, this is the most unhappy Americans have been in 50 years. I recognize that, you know, surveys aren't always like, you know, the Bible. They're not always things that we can bank on and trust in because they're not always accurate, but they can be revealing. In case in point, earlier this year, back in February of 2022, Gallup, if you've ever heard of a Gallup poll, uh, Gallup is like a research data firm, basically. And they, they released this poll earlier this year that sought to gauge, and they were asking American citizens basically a really simple question. How happy are you right now? And sadly enough... The answer is not very. Results show that only 38% or 4 in 10 Americans would say that they are genuinely happy. And I think there's a wide range of factors for that. But this is basically the lowest measurement of that poll in nearly 50 years. I think setting aside the fact that it's hard to measure happiness on a scale, it doesn't seem very precise. I think there's a lot of room for error in that. But regardless, I think if you just take a quick glance at your newspaper, if you still read those, or a quick glance at your Facebook news feed, I think this more than proves true that what this data is trying to tell us, that we're not very happy. (laughs) We're kind of grumpy. We're all walking around like Grinches. Got a little sour face on our face. And I think it's safe to say that there's record highs. If you look at some more statistics and more uh, sort of research and analysis, there's record highs in stress and disappointment, followed by record lows in satisfaction and contentment. (laughs) Making for our present moment to be filled with almost, we could say, a true epidemic of emotion and anxiety and depression. We feel these things at a very palpable level. We feel these things seemingly robbing our joy from us. And as a society, what do we do? We sprint to wrong solutions. 
We go to other people. We go to substances. We go to anything else. We go to entertainment. We go to things to try and get that joy back that is seemingly being stolen from us all the time. I think part of the problem is that, but part of the problem is, you know, I'm just going to say, we know too much. We know more stuff about more people and more places and more things more than any other era of history. (laughs) Because you have something that's more powerful than the first rocket that landed on the moon in your pocket. (laughs) You have all of that information, and that information, I think, is killing us. And it's making us, I think, sadder. It's making us a little bit more gloomy. And I'm not saying everything's Facebook's fault, but it hasn't helped. (laughs) What has robbed our joy? What has soaked and, and, and saturated and evaporated that happiness? It's a good question, I think. It's a question I think is worth pondering even still too for the church. Because I would say, sadly enough, this gloomy sort of outlook and attitude has crept into far too many churches too. You know, they've done studies, and they've actually proven the fact that those who attend church regularly are more happy than those who don't. It's just a fact. And I think it's, it's ma- mainly because I think our bodies are hardwired for worship. We are worshiping creatures. That's how God designed us. That's how God created us. He created us to worship. And if you're not worshiping like this, you're going to find something else to worship. Exercise or or food, or, or entertainment, or whatever. There's a bunch of other things that you can fill into that space, but they all end up doing what? They all end up not actually fulfilling you. The only sort of house of worship that fills you is the house of worship that God has blessed and, 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 and set apart for himself. And yet, despite that fact, if you look around at, at people in churches, and I'm not pointing at anyone here, What do you see sometimes? (laughs) Faces that don't look very happy. Actually, sometimes, and I know you've been in churches like this, so don't lie to me. I've been in them too. You go to this church and it actually looks like you're attending a funeral and not a worship service. (laughs) Everyone just looks... "Mm." Now, if I didn't know better, what, what would we be led to believe if you walked into some churches that have that really somber and serious outlook? You would be led to believe what? That Jesus didn't walk out of the grave. It is a funeral. He didn't walk out. Otherwise, what's with the long faces? You know, Jesus asked two disciples that very same question. Again, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Luke chapter 24, is the scene of Jesus. He's resurrected. And he comes and he meets those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember that story? I love that story. He meets them. They don't know that it's him. And his first question is basically, hey, what's going on? What has you guys so down? Why are your faces so sad? Your conversation seems to be making you more depressed. What are you talking about? Is basically Jesus' question. Why are you walking around like a bunch of Eeyores in the hundred acre wood? What's got you down? And what do they say to him? What do they say to Jesus? It was our teacher. He's dead. He died. We saw him strung out on a cross. And we saw him bleed out. And we saw him die. And it's now three days since that happened. So he's, he's dead dead. There's no coming back from that. And now his body is gone. We have no idea where his body is. There's rumors going out. And there's all kinds of craziness going on. And this has happened in only a few short days. And we thought, what did they say? We thought that it was him. 
We thought that it was he that was going to do what? Save Israel. We thought that it was him that was going to bring us out of Roman domination, out of Roman occupation, bring us out and liberate us and bring us back to glory. And yet now he's dead. Their hopes are all dashed. Their dreams are all crushed. Their joy had been stolen. And their gloomy demeanor, though, as Jesus, what is Jesus going to tell them? <laughs> oh, fools. You are mistaken. You're mistaken. You've missed it. You've misplaced your joy, we might say. He doesn't say those words. But essentially, that's what Jesus is telling. You've hung your joy on the wrong thing. Because this is what it's been about. And what does it say? He then takes them from the law of Moses all the way through the prophets to show them what? The things concerning himself. And why he must needs suffer these things. It was always a part of what God was designing to do. To bring the Messiah down to earth and to suffer for the sake of sinners. Not just Israelites, but for sinners all over the world. And Jesus is basically telling them, this has been the point the whole time. So you see, who actually robbed themselves of their joy? It was them. They forgot. And we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they, they just couldn't wrap their minds around this idea of a resurrection. But every single time you can go through the Gospels. Every single time Jesus predicted his crucifixion. What did he always follow it up with? Resurrection. Every time. And maybe the, the disciples and those who followed him just didn't quite get it. Maybe they didn't quite wrap their heads around it. Maybe they didn't quite understand what he was meaning. But regardless, you can see that not just those two on the road, but all the disciples, they had a very wrongly placed joy. Because what happens when Jesus dies, they go into a very dark place. They lock themselves. John chapter 19, they have, or John chapter 20, 19, 20. Uh, they've locked themselves in the upper room. And it says, out of fear of the Jews. They're afraid. Rumors are already circulating. It's these disciples. They've made it up. They've robbed the body of Jesus. They've, they, they're, they're grave robbers. we got to get them. It was a frightful, stressful moment for the disciples. They didn't remember. They forgot Jesus' words regarding the resurrection. And I think sometimes the point is, I think we have more in common with those Emmaus Road disciples than we would ever like to admit. Who's to blame for our joylessness? Who's the culprit? What has swindled our joy? Perhaps you have a lot of reasons or a lot of responses to such questions. And what's our first reaction? We look to the the people next to us. (laughs) We look to the people around us. We look to our circumstances. And we throw the blame there. It's their fault. It's because of this. I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have reacted that way if it weren't for this. I wouldn't have done that if this person didn't do this thing. We're experts at that, aren't we? We are experts at holding something or someone else accountable for how we respond. And we were basically saying we're not joyful because of XYZ. And in fact... This is the first sin after the fall. Go back to Genesis 3. I know I'm bouncing all over the place. But Genesis 3, what happens? 
Adam and Eve, they, they eat of the fruit. And when Adam is called out for his sin, what's his first reaction? It was her. She, she, she made me do it. It's her fault. God, it's the woman, remember what Adam says, it's the woman you gave me. <laughs> Blaming the woman and God in one fell swoop. It's not Adam. It's not me. It's her. And what does Eve do? It's the serpent. He made me do it. And you could basically say, and the rest is history. Because what have we been doing ever since that moment? Blaming someone else. The reason for our brokenness, the reason that we don't have joy, true joy, which we'll get to in a moment. The reason for all of that is what? Is someone else. We love playing that game. It's our, we could say, our default mode. Blaming others, blaming other people, blaming other circumstances. Our unhappiness is someone else's fault. Our problems are outside of us. They're because of this. Our joylessness is the result of some other situation. I think the hardest pill to swallow, and maybe this is going to be one of those giant horse pills that you have to swallow this morning, is that actually none of that's true. We, we are the culprits. I, I am the only one who can swindle my joy. You are the only one who can blame yourself, who can be blamed, I should say, for your joy being taken away. That's a hard thing to swallow, I think. But the truth of the Bible is that we are our own self-swindlers. We were recently doing a study in our small group all about love and respect. It's a relationship series that I highly, highly recommend to you. And the teacher of it is this one named Dr. Emerson Egricks. And he says within that study that your response is your responsibility. And I've, I found so much power and so much impact in that statement. And of course, in, in the context, he's talking about the relationships between husband and wives and how you respond. is That's your responsibility. But I would say that is true no matter what. In all areas of life, your response is your responsibility. It's a sign of your faith how you respond. Your spouse can't take your joy from you. Nor can your siblings or your parents or your frustrating coworker or your annoying neighbor or even who does or doesn't get into the office. We let those things influence our joy a lot, don't we? We let them change how we act. We let those things affect our demeanor. We let those things, I think, often make it feel as though our joy is drifting away. But you know, the only thing that's revealed if our joy is lost because of something a politician says or because of something a parent did or because of something our spouse does is the fact that our joy has been misplaced. It's been hung on the wrong hook. We've pinned our joy to the wrong thing because when we get out of sorts because of what others do, what are we saying? Our joy, our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate peace rise on them being faultless. (laughs) You're elevating that person, place, or thing to the level of God. And doing so with people who are sinners just like you is doomed for failure. You're setting yourself up to be just as dashed as those disciples onto the road to Emmaus. Your joy has been hung on the wrong hook. It's not been tied to the right dock, we could say. See, no one can steal your joy from you except you. Why? Because 
For you, church, your joy is not ultimately found in your spouse or your kids or your, par- or your parents or, or your favorite politician or whatever you fill in the blank there. Our joy, a true, lasting joy, is only found in Jesus Christ. And you may say, yeah, I already knew that. But you know that this is part of his whole mission the whole time. What does Jesus say in John 15? What does he say? These things I have spoken to you, what? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Not just filled up a little bit more than what you already have. It full to the brim. That's what Jesus has decided to do. When he comes to earth, what is his, what, not his only motivator, but what is one of his motivators? Giving people who are joyless everlasting joy. He even says this in John 17, that great prayer. Now he says, I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus' mission is that right there, giving you his joy by giving us himself. That's the gospel. And that's what brings us back again. This is all going to tie together, I promise. Brings us back to Luke chapter 2. Because that announcement of Christ the Lord born in a manger... Is the announcement of God giving us his joy. Why is it good news of great joy? (laughs) Because the one who is joy manifests in the flesh is sitting there in a manger trough. And one day that same one, that same infant, that same baby would, and I'm getting ahead of myself. He would one day die so that he could bleed out and give that joy to others. It's the announcement that that God's joy is being given to us, which leads me to ask this all-important question. What does God's joy look like? When the angels say that they've come to bring in this good news of great joy that will be for all people, what does that really mean? What does great joy look like? And I think that's what brings us all the way to Zephaniah. At long last, maybe you're thinking... Zephaniah 3, I think, is exactly what the angel was meaning to imply when he says great joy. What does great joy look like? It looks like this. <laughs> These last seven verses of Zephaniah that fill this third chapter, they are brimming with rejoicing and exaltation and singing. Which is, you have to know, if you just sort of glance and scan the rest of Zephaniah, is a total contrast to the rest of the book. It's only three chapters, but it's three, it's two and a half really grueling chapters. It's a book of judgment. It's a book of challenging. It's a book of correcting. Zephaniah the prophet, as he says in the very first chapter, the first verse, he is a prophet who is in the days of King Josiah. If you remember from our series in 1 Kings, what happened in Josiah's days? <laughs> revival. But what preceded that revival? Two generations of horrible kings, Manasseh and Ammon, they brought Judah down. They made Judah into ruins. They brought all kinds of perversion back into the temple. Manasseh, one of the most reprehensible kings, brought in all kinds of false, ide- false worship, false gods, perverse, uh, per- perverted liturgies, all kinds of things back into the kingdom of Judah. 
And you can imagine Zephaniah, he is a prophet of Yahweh who is preaching right in that transitionary period between Amon and Josiah. And he's saying, Judah, you better wake up. Because there's a day of reckoning coming for you. Listen to what he says, Zephaniah 1 verse 2. Notice, this is the word announced to God's people. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord. Yet, and yet swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord. Who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Is there any room for error there? It's going to be a sweeping judgment that leaves no one left out. It's a fierce word of reckoning to those who have turned their back on God himself. And if you remember from our series in Kings, this happened over and over and over again. Zephaniah is just one among the many prophets who came and challenged the people of God to wake up. Listen up, these are the words of Yahweh. You can imagine Zephaniah preaching this to them. And you can even think, what did they have to be joyful about? Because suddenly, in chapter 3, verse 14, the tone shifts. Judgment, reckoning, correction to sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. And shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. What did they have to be joyful about? Judah is in shambles. Israel has already been overtaken. That kingdom, they're done for. They're they're over and done with. Now Judah, they're on the brink. They're teetering on the edge of being totally annihilated themselves. And now they've just gotten this word that this is coming. What do they have to be joyful about? For all the reasons that Judah might have had to be joyless, what does God give them? He gives them even more to rejoice in. And it all centers on this mighty one who is going to come and bring about all that God had promised. Notice verse 15 again. The Lord, what? Has now these words, again, remember who he's talking to. He's talking to people who had turned their back, who had rebelled, who had sinned against God, who had done their own thing and gone their own way. They had totally turned against God. They deserved judgment. And what does he say to them? You can rejoice. Why? Because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He would come 
God promises, I'm going to send one who is going to come in the midst of you. And he's going to take away your judgments. All those things that are against you, he's going to do something about them. He's going to clear away all your enemies, leaving you no reason to fear and giving you every reason to sing. And there was going to be no stopping this Lord who was in their midst. He's a mighty warrior of heaven. And by him and by his strength, what happens? The oppressed will be delivered. The lame, as he says in verse 18, they will be liberated. And the scattered will be recovered into one joyous assembly who will be singing forever the praises of the king of Israel. And most notably, what do we see in these verses is that the king of Israel was going to make this happen himself. And in fact, in verses 18 down through the end, in just three verses, six times, what does God say? I will. I will gather. I will deal with your oppressors. I will save. I will change. I will bring you in. I will make you renowned. I will do it. I will make it so. I will make it come true. I will bring all of these things about by my own good will. I'm guaranteeing it. You can count on it. And in fact, what does he even say in verse number 20? Notice, at that time I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised. Note, among all the peoples of the earth. And when I restore your fortunes, it will be before your eyes. You're not going to miss it. There's going to be no mistaking that what I do is going to be right in front of you. It's going to be a palpable change. It's going to be something so magnificent. No one's going to be able to miss it. And the point is, all of this is accomplished in that baby who's lying in a manger. The mighty one of Israel who comes to save is that paradoxical image of an, instant, of an infant that is demanding of his mother to live. That's the otherworldly part of the joy we have in Jesus is that baby in a manger is the same one who is here promised to be the valiant warrior that's going to deliver Zion. The one who's going to deliver Zion by his own death. Jesus is the one who fulfills all of these words. He's the one who is in our midst, the one who comes down, the one who comes to dwell among us. And though he is a newborn, even still he is in control. Even still he is sovereign. Even still he is that mighty one through whom all fear is cast out and every enemy vanquished. In Jesus, the judgments are removed and the ordinances are canceled. That's that verse all the way in Colossians chapter 2. That yes, all of those words, the handwriting of debt that is against us is what? Nailed to the cross where Jesus disarms the evil one. Making a show of them openly. He's going to embarrass Satan as we talked about a few weeks ago. And at the same time, what is he doing? He's canceling the judgment. Canceling all of the things that are against us. Those same little baby hands that reached out for Mary are the same hands that were strung out on a cross. And that's how he demonstrates God's love for the world. And he takes all of this away by taking it on himself. This is happening in Jesus. 
And in Jesus too, all of the people that the world forgets, the world shuns, the world disregards, those are the people Jesus grabs and brings close. What does the prophet say? I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Who is Jesus embracing? Who is Jesus gathering? The weak, the homeless, the lame, the outcast, those whom the world deems off limits. He comes and says, I choose you. You look at Jesus' ministry, especially in the book of Luke. You see this. He comes and fellowships with sinners. Really bad sinners, if you want to think about it that way. Tax collectors, traitors of Israel, prostitutes, leopards, she- lepers, shepherds, gluttons. All these who the Pharisees were saying, you cannot fellowship with them. Jesus says, I'm the friend of sinners. Actually, Jesus didn't even say that. The Pharisees called him that. <laughs> they accused him of being what? A friend of gluttons and sinners. And Jesus says, yep. You speak truth, essentially. He relishes in what they were looking to demean him by. (laughs) He says, yep, I am. For the Son of Man, he says, comes to seek and to save those who are lost. Those, he says, who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is who God in Christ rejoices over. What does he say in verse 17? The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. This is happening in Jesus. Rejoicing over sinners, over you. And not just rejoicing over them. He's rejoicing over them because why? Because he makes them precious in his sight. By what? Giving them his renown. As he says again, verse 19, I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Renown, what does it mean? It basically means he's giving them his reputation, his name. If you have the name of something, you have all that that name entails. It's like you are standing in place and that name overrides anything else. God saying to these people, I'm going to give you my renown, is them, is him giving them his ultimate everlasting blessing. And he's saying even there to us uh, here today that in Christ we are given the renown, the reputation of God by faith in Christ. That's what we have to rejoice in. And I think all of this is a veiled reference to the church. It doesn't say church here, but it says gather a number of times. Essentially, the word means assembly. And what is the church? But a gathering of the broken coming to delight in what God in Christ has given them. That's what he, this prophet, is here sort of insinuating and suggesting. There's coming a day when God is going to show the world what he can do and the type of joy that he can give them by what? Gathering a group of people that are broken and battered and bruised and giving them his joy by giving them himself. You know, that's what we have to rejoice in here this morning. 
That's why we can be joyful. Every gospel-centered church around this country, around this world, ought to be, I would say, an outpost of God's joy. Dispensing it and distributing the good news of great joy that's available for all people. And what does that great joy look like? It looks like this word that comes to people who are joyless. This word in Zephaniah comes to people who are in a moment of history and a moment of time. Have nothing to joy in. It looks like shepherds receiving the news that yes, there is great joy. And there's a Christ who has been born. And he's a baby in a cradle down the way. Which is just to say... Great joy looks like facing a future of uncertainty and believing in what God has said despite all the evidence to the contrary. Because in Zephaniah's day, it didn't look like things were going to get good. And what happened? Josiah heard these words. Perhaps he even heard the words of Zephaniah himself. And what happens? A great and sweeping revival overcame the people of Judah. In the shepherd's day, it didn't look like anything was going to be good. Anything that they could sort of latch their joy onto. And what happens? The one who is joy was in their midst. Our day is yeah, filled with a lot of trouble. A lot of turmoil. We see it all the time. We feel it perhaps all the time. And it can make us feel the worst. I don't know about you, but this is a thing that I have to pray myself out of. I am a dweller. I dwell on things, and usually that you ends up being dwelling on things that, uh, that looks like very pessimistic. I would just say I'm being a realist. Other people would say you're being too pessimistic. <laughs> I tend to do that, and I have to pray myself out of that. We're joyless sometimes. But the good news of great joy, it invites us to rejoice in what God has done, no matter how bad things get. And the point is this, that when the Bible says in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always, that doesn't mean we have to put on fake smiles. That's not joy. (laughs) Don't, Don't walk out of the doors thinking that I'm calling everyone just to put on a fake happy smile. That's not what I'm saying. It means something way more palpable, way more powerful, I think. It means what it says in Nehemiah 8.10. That the joy of the Lord is our strength. Strength is a great word, but it's not good enough, I think, in terms of our translation. It means a place of safety. Or, more specifically, that word strength is a harbor where boats are docked. You know what, before I became a full-time preacher, when Natalie and I were living in Florida, I used to work in downtown Palm Beach. I used to work there, and all that basically means is, in terms of what I want to tell you this morning, is that I, I, would, I was able to take walks along the intercoastal that sits between Florida mainland and Palm Beach Island. I was able to take walks along the intercoastal, just looking at all the sites, looking at you know, various things as I was walking on my lunch breaks. And one of the most memorable sites I always remember is row after row after row of yachts there, just parked, docked along the pier. Yachts that I was just staggered by, stunned by, because of their massive size. And how much opulence was poured into all of those boats that were there. And then, too, one of the most sad sights you can always see is what? Those same docks after a hurricane. When you see all of those yachts reduced to nothing but a mangled scrap heap. Always made me sad. 
But even if there was no hurricane, what could you notice? What, did, what could you see? Well, as you were walking, if you were walking along that way, you could see the boat still bobbing up and down in the water with the tides. They were still moving. They were still sort of moving around and bobbing up and down. But what kept them from floating away? The dock to which they were tethered. Every boat, no matter how size, whether it was a giant, you know, Trump yacht or whether it was just a little dinghy, no matter what was docked there, they all felt the same effects of the ocean. But as long as they were moored to the right dock, they were safe. I would say the same is true for me and you here this morning. We are safe and we are strong and we can be joyful so long as what? Our joy is docked, we could say, in the Lord and his word. You're going to feel the effects of things that happen in life. You're going to bob up and down with the storms and the trials and the severest times of stress and conflict and squabbling and infighting and backbiting and gossiping and all those sorts of things. Those happen because we are sinners and sinners is what we are. And sinners sin. But what keeps you joyful? The joy that can't be stolen. The dock that can't be moved. The joy that Jesus gives you can't be stolen. You can only let it slip away. The joy that Jesus gives you comes because he gives you himself. And that's not a gift that he rescinds. That's why his gospel gives us this joy forever. and invites us to find it in these fulfilled words of God. And in that finished work on the cross. That's what he's giving us. That's what he's promising us. And here this morning, church, I'm just telling, I'm calling you, I'm inviting you. You can rejoice. Because no matter what happens with the oceans, no matter what happens in your life, in the days ahead, what is true? The mighty one is in your midst and he has come to save. And in Jesus, it's already true. Did you, uh, this is just an awesome point and I'll just point out to you in verse 15. Did you notice what he says? The Lord has taken away. As if it was already good. As if it was already true. And my friends, for you here this morning, it is. Jesus Christ is alive forever. Your joy, it can be docked in the never moving joy of who Jesus is. The Lord is with you, my friends. He is for you and he is your joy. This is the good news of great joy that we have in Jesus. Take heart, church, and rejoice. Let us pray.